0: Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything foreign policy has to offer.
1: Hello. Hello. And welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. I'm Ben, a producer here at the IAI. And I'm Charlie and I'm senior producer here at the IAI. So Charlie, today we've got Material Girls featuring writer and philosopher Kathleen Stock. This took place at the 2022 How the Light Gets In Festival in Hay, the philosophy festival produced by the team here at the IAI. So, Charlie, tell us a little bit about this talk. Well, this talk
2: explores Kathleen's perspective on gender and identity. And recently, a lot of the vituperation she's been receiving from several activists around that field. And also, she talks about the academic community more broadly some of the recalcitrance she's been experiencing. It seems a particularly timely talk for what happened recently at the Oxford Union and recently some of the other media appearances that she's been making.
1: Absolutely, a highly charged topic for sure, but an interesting area and one that's worth exploring. But remember, before we get into it, if you enjoy today's episode, please don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Now, it's time to welcome Kathleen Stock to Philosophy for Our Times.
3: Hi, uh, thank you for coming. So my book, Material Girls, Why Reality Matters to Feminism, published last year, is broadly speaking an argument between, I would say, trans activist organizations, those who want to prioritize gender identity above sex, socially, politically, legally, and those like me who insist that biological sex matters socially, politically, legally, and it should automatically be de-prioritized. And I think that's primarily an argument between organizations, as far as I'm concerned. I'm arguing with organizations um, like Stonewall, the Equality Network in Scotland, Gendered Intelligence, Amnesty, Liberty, any, any other progressive organization that has pushed gender identity as the main thing that needs to be paid attention to in this area. And then the people that support me largely are grassroots feminist organizations because the establishment feminist organizations have largely gone in the direction of gender identity as well. Um, And I just want to add the usual caveat that I'm not arguing with individual trans people, although sometimes I am because they disagree with me, but they are not my target. Not all trans activists are trans people. Actually, lots of trans activists are not trans people and not all trans people are trans activists. So I've been billed here as seeking to move towards a less polarized future in this area. And I do want to talk about that, but um, I'm going to take a slightly circuitous route. And what I'm certainly not going to do is engage in the traditional, uh, utterly ineffectual uh, attempts to depolarize the whole thing by calling for mature or considerate or respectful debate. Uh, The sort of thing Keir Starmer's always telling Labour Party people to do. Because I can tell you now, for several years, I have been engaging in exactly that reasonable, respectful, mature, considerate debate, and it has made no bloody difference whatsoever. In fact, it makes people more angry with me. Um, So there's this whole, the more reasonable that people like me appear, the more careful, patient arguments we try and push forward or evidence we try and appeal to, the more, the greater the efforts to smear our characters. In fact, there's this whole narrative that you know they only seem reasonable, but really they're sinister, and all, the, all their reasonable talk is like a fig leaf or a dog whistle for their terrible intentions. So I'm gonna talk about reduced polarization, but what I want to do instead is look at a particular incident that happened on a u- university campus last week, um, because I think, and I'd like to analyze it a bit, because I think it has some instructive features. It's quite generic. It's quite familiar to me, it's got a sort of genre feel. So last week at Warwick University, Minister for Education Nadim Zahawi had to be hustled off campus by security, faced with about 30 students shouting Tory scum and banging on the doors of the room where he was gonna give a talk. And you can see it online, there's videos of it. Now that's normal, (laughs) Uh, students are always protesting about Tory scum and they're always uh, banging on doors and that's fine and I'm not objecting to that at all. But what I do want to focus on is the reasons that these students gave for why they were doing this. So they released a statement. Um, the, the organizers of the protest were Warwick Pride Society, and they released a statement to coincide with it. And Warwick Pride Society, in their words, is the University of Warwick Students' Union Society for Lesbian, Gay, Bi, Trans, Undefined and asexual, aromantic students and their friends. And undefined, I looked up on the internet, and it's the label for those who don't want to be defined. (laughs) By labels. (laughs) So if you don't want to be defined by labels, you'll have the label being undefined. (laughs) (laughs) So as their statement reveals, the society's outrage was not at Tory corruption, or sleaze, or student fees, or generation rent, or any of the other traditional political concerns of the left. The protest was because they believed Zahawi personally to be a reactionary harmful transphobe, and they cited a number of reasons. Number one (laughs) is that last year, Zahawi had come to the defense of the notorious transphobe Kathleen Stock in public when I was faced with similar problems to his at my own former campus, Sussex, albeit on a bit of a larger scale. The second reason they gave was that Zahawi, they said, plays a significant role in institutional transphobia as Education Secretary for the UK, working alongside the Equality and Human Rights Commission to produce guidelines for schools and teachers on how they should treat trans students. And basically, What they were getting at was that recently Zahawi has emphasized that parents should be, he says, front and center in any school decisions about whether to change the name or the pronouns of a child in their care. So using language drawn from gay rights, the statement from the Pride Society represents this stance of his as endorsing the outing of children as trans and accuses Zahawi of putting children who are so outed at risk of abuse and homelessness. So if a the the narrative is supposed to go that if a school tells a parent that their child has changed their name, you will be risking exposing to abuse and homelessness, just just like that. They also say that one in six trans children who've been made homeless were forced to do sexual acts against their will by family members before becoming homeless. So they're trying to link this elaborate causal chain between a parent being told (laughs) that their children's pronouns have changed or, you know, that they want to change their pronouns, to some kind of sexual abuse likelihood, which I think is quite mad. And the final reason given for the protest is that Zahawi has in the past made transphobic remarks such as using the common transphobic dog whistle, adult human female. Right, so, he's used the words adult human female. This is a dog whistle, this is transphobic, <laughs> um, case closed. And. So they say, on the basis of this, the notion that Zahawi does not incite hatred is ludicrous at best. And they finish with the following statement, given that transphobia is omnipresent in society, it is imperative for the mental well-being of trans students that the university make itself clear that it is indeed supportive of transgender individuals and that reactionary harmful transphobic rhetoric will not go unopposed. Trans rights are simply not up for debate, they are non-negotiable. So that's the statement, so what can we learn from this statement? Now, I could argue with some of its ideas, and I do that in my book, but I really just want to look at its form rather than its content, because I think it's quite generic. Statements of this kind come up in my life quite a lot. So I think we should focus on some of its features. And the first thing to note is that there's a common theme underlying all of the student complaints in this. They're all about validating the inside, the psychological, the inner, right? So there's, it's not even just about Identifying as the opposite sex anymore. It's about being non binary or being aromantic or asexual or uh, undefined or whatever it is. And it's all about my identity psychologically, automatically, should be recognised by you. And that is the demand. So when they complain against me or the HRC or against the teachers who want to tell the parents that something's going on here. Or again, Zahawi for using the word adult human female, in every case they're presuming that there is just no circumstances whatsoever where it would be not okay, or sorry, where it would be okay, not to agree with someone's own words about their own identity. Now I want there's two things to say about that, but one is just how completely totalizing it is. There's just no context in which you shouldn't concede to someone's identity claim about themselves. And I think um, that's very common. Like, there's just no quarter given. Because it's possible you could have a completely different position, which is, like, sometimes we should exceed gender identity claims, and sometimes we should say that other things are important, like material circumstance or how this affects other people. Or You know, there'd be lots of potential things that could matter there. I think, obviously, there are cases and lots of contexts in which inner identity cannot be the final word on Entrance into female only spaces or sports teams or whatever it is, or children's identity when it's linked into medicalization that can affect them for their whole lives. But take the most extreme sort of case, like think, of, I don't know, some of you might disagree with me thoroughly, but if you've got any ambiguity here, it's likely to be around, I imagine, sport, uh, when you've got sort of obviously male-bodied people in women's sports teams or putting um, male rapists in women's prison, which is happening. <laughs> you know, if you've got any ambiguity there, you would expect some nuance in trans organizations. They might just say, well, okay, here, there's a problem. But no, they never do. They just go all the way. Stonewall, like, thinks that male-bodied people should be in women's rugby. They think that male-bodied people should be in women's prisons. They just have no ability to, to nuance. And I think that's a feature of this style of thinking. So I just wanna point that out. And the other thing is this demand for validation of identities is so individualistic. It doesn't matter what's going on, like I say, at the level of nature or culture even. It's not about social construction in any traditional sense. It's just what's going on in your head now determines how people should relate to you. And that's almost apolitical as far as I can see. It's, It's so individualistic. It's, you know, politics is about, distribution of goods it's also about cultural identity but cultural identity is usually thought of as something that um, comes from other people and how they relate to you as opposed to you just demanding that you get seen a certain way Um, but so this is not identity in that sense either it's like in identification with psychologically identifying with some label and I think that that's an interesting feature of a lot of this discussion, too how apolitical it is and how it's not really um, tapped into anything other outside the self.
0: Do
1: you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses, and live events. Are bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month and there's no commitment to pay so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level.
3: And the other thing to notice about this Warwick statement that I'd like to draw your attention to is it's fundamentally tied into the discourse of mental health. Um, So the Warwick statement says, given transphobia is omnipresent, you know, it talks about the mental well-being of trans students. It's important the university supports them. The university is posited as this authority figure, this kind of almost parental figure that has to support them because it will be bad for their mental health if they don't. And they even include a quote from a psychologist. There is strong evidence that minorities experience greater levels of stress when their rights are being debated, says Dr. Adam Jowett, the chair of the British Psychological Society's Sexuality section. So that, that bringing in of mental health into this area is a big feature too. In trans activism generally, you are likely to find the idea that debate or negotiation is a harm and it will lead to, then it's claimed, you know, increased suicide or um, other mental health problems or self-harm or increased exposure to violence. So you will be harming people if you debate their identities. There's also, in this statement and more generally, the idea that um, any criticism whatsoever of the ideas is transphobic, that you just cannot. There's nothing you can say <laughs> critically about this that doesn't somehow indicate that you are badly motivated towards the people. Even if you say, no, no, I don't like the ideas. (laughs) No, 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 it must be about the people, and you are therefore hurting them. So I think this is cult-like thinking. (laughs) I think it's um, very similar to the sort of thinking that you find in cults where, you know, if you read about cults, the leaders tell them, anyone who disagrees with us is a hater. You know, they don't like us. And there's always this attempt to, like, get solidarity within the group by telling narratives of paranoid harm that will come to the group if you don't stick together. You know, now, despite the appeal to mental health, there seems to me that there are kind of almost structural mental health issues within this letter. I mean, it's extremely paranoid and it's quite narcissistic. So, my question is: How did students end up writing this document? They're not alone. These statements are very generic. They come out of lots of pride societies um, and other places. I don't think this generation is fundamentally different to previous generations. I don't think that they, you know, all had a random um, aberration. I think they're encouraged by institutions to think like this, and that's my point. So that's why I'm picking on this. It's really. Easy to sort of dismiss this as just like, oh, it's a bit nuts, spit a bit weird, it's just students. But no, it's quite familiar to me. And I think our institutions and the adults, <laughs> uh, progressive institutions in particular, I'm afraid, are, if not um, forming them, they're certainly reinforcing these styles of thinking and they're not pushing back against them. So that's my theme, really. Every time a progressive institution automatically defers to the ideas of gender identity in its policies, which a lot of them are doing, including universities. So in other words, they rewrite the changing room policies to make them self-ID. They rewrite the sports policies to make them self-ID. They have, they tell, you know, you're supposed to do a pronoun round when you go into class. So every time you practically enact this ideology, you're telling students effectively, you can't be wrong about who you are. You just cannot, you know, however you feel you are, then you are, and the university will make an effort to recognize that so standard notions from like philosophy or just life like being (laughs) self-deceived you know not knowing who you are taking a while to work out who you are maybe being wrong for a bit right for a bit wrong for a bit responsive to evidence all of that seems to have gone like you're just you are who you are right now if you change then they'll they'll build that into the narrative so you're just fluid but that's your identity (laughs) rather than just a fact of human nature okay so we're telling Young people, everyone, if you have a given identity, others need to accommodate it without exception. You think of Stonewall's t shirts from 2015, you know, trans women are women, get over it. It's very aggressive, like, you just accept that. And I think that this way of thinking encourages a kind of arrogance about your own thinking and about the demands that you're permitted to place on others. And it discourages empathy. Like It discourages thoughts about how other people might be feeling in relation to your identity and whether it might make them feel uncomfortable or it might actually materially affect their own uh, way through the world. All you're encouraged to think by this style of thinking is the effects on you. And then there's also the fact that people are being encouraged to treat any criticism, as I said, of this set of ideas as criticism of them. So it's really encouraging a kind of... um, Victim mentality, where you just keep feeling attacked all the time, except you know, and you can't really differentiate the attacks on the ideas from the attacks on you, so you feel very vulnerable. But it's also um, just shutting down debate, quite obviously. And this is this is clear from the definitions of transphobia that get given. So Stonewall's definition of transphobia is any basically includes any failure to accept gender identity transphobic. So you know, <laughs> everything I do in public is now transphobic. I would say it wasn't, because <laughs> I would say that's a ridiculously broad um, definition of transphobia, but if that, that definition, which is obviously trickling through institutions, through HR schemes, Stonewall has massive cultural power in the HR sector, they will all, that definition of transphobia is reproduced on every university website, every progressive institution website, you know, so it's going to start chilling, proper discussion of these things. Then there's also the fact that in this kind of style of thinking, you are telling uh, particularly young people that the most interesting about them is their identity and possibly some kind of victimhood status as well. So if you're re- rewarding that with attention, <laughs> and I think some universities are, because they're frightened not to, then you reinforce it. Um, so there's plenty of philosophy of social um, science that looks at how social structures can create kinds of people. like you know. Ian Hacking being the most obvious person I can think of, he's got a book called Making Up People, I think it is, or a paper, Making Up People. We are creating people who feel like their identity is the most important thing about them because we keep treating it as if it is the most important thing about them. And that's just gonna gonna make the class of people that think like this bigger and bigger over time, unless we start introducing newer narratives about what other other things people can be. Basically, I'll just finish by saying, What can institutions do to change this style of thinking? Because, no, I'm not arguing with the ideas. I'm not saying, let's not have... We can have the ideas, (laughs) but we need to make sure that there's room for other ideas and discussion of them, and it's not wedded to this, I would say, quite paranoid, cultish style of of, um, thinking about it. I think um, one thing they can do, as implied by what I've already said, is they can... if this will ever happen, progressive institutions can just cut ties with organizations that demand they enact these ideas practically in advance of discussing them. Like I say, I just don't see how you can have reasonable discussion of these ideas if the universities, for instance, or the institution, wherever it is, has already enacted these ideas in its policies, including the one about transphobia, which says any discussion of these ideas is transphobic. That's just not gonna work. So it's no good Keir Starmer calling for respectful discussion when his party is a Stonewall diversity champion, and he has already agreed with all of this effectively institutionally. Um, and the thing is, the the more you shut down discussion, the more furious people get. <laughs> so the polarization is driven by this, like y- this whole kind of dampening down of discussion about it means that people are feeling tongue-tied and suffocated and outraged and they really and their spaces are changing and you know even men even men's toilets are changing you know it's all and it's never been discussed and you're being told all the time you can't think about this it's it's for the good of this other group of people it's just not polarization will continue if that's the way it goes and secondly um I think we need to, institutions really need to toughen up to the kind of emotional blackmailing of this sort of rhetoric. Universities particularly in this group, they just cannot seem to help to buy into this narrative of mental health, that you know you are saving the mental health of this group, um, that they are very vulnerable, we've got to look after them, and I'll give you one example. When I was at Sussex, well in the last month at Sussex, and I was facing quite a lot of aggression on my own campus. Sussex put on extra safe spaces for trans students because they might feel threatened <laughs> by what was happening to me. So, you know, the, the skewing is always like they are the most vulnerable, no matter what. There's not really a lot of evidence for this, by the way. I mean, there really isn't. And there's obviously other identity groups at university that we might think about um, as well and their experience. So we don't, anyway. And the mental health narrative is, in, is just producing a group of people who really cannot relate to the world in functional ways, I think. So we need to like build in resilience models, and s- sort of push back on all the expansion of trauma language, uh, and so on. There's a lot to do there. We also need a media that will cover it in a nonpartisan way, and I don't think it's healthy actually that the left will do the sort of cheering for gender identity and the right <laughs> will do all the criticism. <laughs> I would like to see a media where the right does some cheering for gender identity and the left does some criticism, so that it's more balanced, so the, the same readers can get two different perspectives rather than two sets of readers getting one perspective each, because that's clearly not helping. So what's at stake? Well I think, because I would do women's rights, children's rights, uh, trans people's rights actually, lesbian and gay rights. But even if you disagree with me about all of that, you have to agree surely that uh, this style of thinking is not helpful h- healthy in our institutions, progressive ones um, and there's a lot of state because these tactics can be co-opted by other groups, like you know anyone could just do this. they get the right sort of emotional blackmailing narrative. Institutions seem absolutely powerless to some institutions seem very powerless to uh, deal with this and uh that's not good for democracy. It's the end of a meaningful politics. If, if all we're going to do is go around saying, I feel that this is true, and I don't have to refer to any evidence or discuss anything with you about how this affects you, then that's not a meaningful politics. There'll be endless social division. Um, class interests are obscured, quite obviously. <laughs> class interests are massively obscured in this area. Seems to me it's like white middle class people that are prosecuting gender identity stuff. Um, but, uh, so we need to expose all this to the light basically. And I'm going to stop there.
1: <laughs> well, that was an interesting talk,
2: Charlie. Yeah, and thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.